Father, we are an ignorant people. For that we ask forgiveness, but we ask also, Father, that you would remove that ignorance through your spirit. We are, Father, a helpless people. So we do pray, Father, as we have recited in our New Testament reading this morning, you are our helper. And so we pray that you would send the helper, the paraclete, the one alongside to teach us from your word today. And then, Father, we pray that you would exalt the Lord Jesus because this passage is about him. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So, Mr. Logan, if you would, it's uh, slide 434 to begin this morning. And uh, you've already heard me say that this is the uh, one of, and certainly, if not the most uh, difficult passage of Scripture uh, in the New Testament. And I reminded you last week, because of that, it is incumbent upon us to read the passage in context. You've heard me say hundreds, if not thousands of times, context is keen. And so when we expose the word as an expositional preacher or teacher, but the task, our task is clear. And that is that if we cannot plumb the depths of these mysteries, and this is a, um, a um, sometimes a confusing passage, if we cannot plumb them, then we need to align them with Scripture, all Scripture. That's what context means, all Scripture. So then we have two actions. The first one is to state the primary points as clear as we can, and the second one is to avoid major error without building a novel doctrine on obscure passages. And believe me when I say there have been novel doctrines that have been formulated from this passage and we're going to look at them this morning and Lord willing we'll be able to dissect them if not we'll finish it next Sunday morning. Now Martin Luther who no stranger to scripture a very very intelligent man he was a Greek and Latin scholar and Hebrew scholar. Luther is no stranger to opinions if you know anything about him and he didn't lack in any, any of the nuances of the Greek language. When he came to this particular passage, he wrote this. A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. You're far more learned, learned man than I am, and certainly an individual that spent probably 12 to 16 hours a day studying the Word of God. Now when we come to these passages, and uh, as I mentioned to you last week, about 95%, 90 to 95% of Scripture is, is not obscure. And when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, we don't need to seek any other sense. Now, this one is somewhat obscure. And one of the reasons that people avoid these types of passages, or this passage in particular, is because they can't see themselves in it. Well, this isn't about me. Well, folks, the Bible is not about you. 
It's not about me. The Bible is about the beauty and wonder of the magnificent God that we serve. And through Jesus Christ, the revelation of God to us brought about by the Word. And here's the, here's the thing. There's a fallacy in this because when we look at uh, scriptures and we think that I don't see myself in this, we're wrong. We sin because this passage is about what Jesus has done for his people. And that's you and I. So remember that when you come to difficult passages of scripture. We've covered a number of them over the years in preaching and teaching. In verse 18, we looked last week at the reality of a risen Savior. This morning in verses 19 through 21, and we won't get through verse 21, I'll tell you that at the beginning. I know that's no surprise to you, but uh, we're looking at the example of a ridicule of Noah. And in verse 22, the reign of the risen Jesus Christ. So the primary point, and that's what we just identified, state the primary points as clear as we can. So here's the primary point, and you need to keep that in, in your mind as we go through this. The primary point that Peter is writing about is that when we suffer, and as believers we suffer, we're not talking about physical pain now, or we're not talking about illnesses, let's say that. Because unsaved people suffer from illnesses. But the point is that when we suffer for the faith, and that's basically what Peter's been talking about, uh, go all the way back to chapter 2. Eventually, we will be triumphant like Christ. When we suffer unjustly, and that's what we've just read in verse 18, the just for the unjust, you and I are the unjust. There's not but one just, and that's Jesus. When we suffer unjustly, and if we are believers, we will, there is victory in suffering because Jesus suffered for us. So Peter is setting the stage there in verse 18. Now, next slide, brother. When you look at this passage of Scripture, and basically any passage of Scripture, but especially this one, uh, there are three main qu questions that arise from these verses, 19 and 20, and they foster additional questions. So we have uh, listed some of them here, and I'll do my best to answer uh, as many as we can this morning. Where, who were the spirits in prison? Were they unbelievers that had died? Were they Old Testament believers that had died? Were they fallen angels? So the second main question is, what did Christ preach? Did he preach a second chance for repentance? Did he preach the completion of redemptive work? Or did he preach a final condemnation of the evil angels and the declaration of his triumph over death and hell? And the third main question is, when did he preach? What's the timing of this? In the days of Noah? Between his death and resurrection? 
or after his resurrection before his physical ascension. Now, this may seem, I preach, that's a lot of questions. Well, when you look at this passage, if we, if we miss these or we misconstrue these, then we're going to confuse the passage, and it will become more confusing to us. And generally, when we come to something that is more confusing, instead of being intelligent human beings and trying to figure it out, we'll say, oh, it's over my head. That's not my, it's above my pay grade. Well, as believers, we, we have the responsibility of determining, of trying to exegete, trying to interpret the Scripture in such a manner that it is clear to us. Next slide. So there's, there's no easy way to do this, folks. So fasten your seatbelts. There are three to five views of this passage through church history. All of them have to do with the triumph of Christ. And one of the great things that this passage teaches us is that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as a triune God, they are doing a trillion things that don't involve me. Okay? And in those trillions and trillions and trillions of things, they do impact me. When you come to a passage like this, you begin to see the magnificence and the omnipotence of the God we serve. A.W. Tozer said many, many years ago, your God is too small. Well, we're looking at a passage, and this is a big, big God. Far larger than we could ever imagine. So there are five, and I won't say basic, but five views of this passage. Number one, Christ in spirit, and that's what it says here, in the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah in his day, repentance and redemption to unbelievers on the earth. They are now spirits in prison, people snared by the sin in Noah's day. Uh, we use the word hell. We'll define that as we go through this passage. This is the view of Augustine, who certainly was a uh, wonderful theologian. A lot of our systematic theology today goes all the way back to, it goes back to Paul, but Augustine was uh, intelligent enough to be able to itemize it. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was a uh, significant middle-aged theologian. Wayne Grudem today and John Piper would be just an example. Some of, the, some of those that believe that this uh, first view is the one that Peter is speaking of. Second one, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell. And now talk, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Sheol, not Hades, not Gehenna. Sheol, the grave. Dead Old Testament saints liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. This is the view of 
the Scotsman, C.B. Cranfell, and others. And if you would, look over the page, 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 6. <clears throat> For this reason, the gospel was uh, preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to, the, to God in the Spirit. So their justification is that particular verse in chapter 4. Number 3. After Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell. He proclaimed to them that he had triumphed over them, and their condemnation was final. This was the view of Martin Luther, who we've just quoted to say, I really don't, I'm really unsure of what Peter's saying, but this is the position I'm going to take. And it's also the Orthodox Lutheran position, as you might imagine, since uh, Luther was the uh, uh, father of Lutheranism. Number four, after Christ died, he proclaimed release to people that had repented just before they died in the flood offering them a second chance at salvation, leading them out of their imprisonment, purgatory, into heaven. Uh, in the Middle Ages also, Cardinal Robert uh, uh, Bellarmine, and this is the position of the Roman Catholics. And the fifth one is after Christ died, after he rose but before he ascended into heaven, now, that's important. He went to hell, but the hell that he went to is the one that is called Tartarus. I'll explain that in just a moment. And he proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned with women before the flood, back in Genesis chapter 6. This is the view of Edward Selwyn and is also the view of the Baptist um, Thomas Schreiner, it is the most prevalent view today. Uh, John MacArthur subscribes to this almost number of individuals. So I guess in order to understand this briefly, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Now your head's going to start to spin. And that's okay, because your head spun when you took algebra, did it not? When it took cal calculus. When it took chemistry, my head started to spin when I took chemistry. And I finally decided that I don't need chemistry. I can pop a pill and I don't need to know what's in it. Amen? <laughs> well, this just goes to say, and as, as I've told you before, when I was employed outside of uh, pastoring, of course, I when I would uh, share my faith with people, they would, uh, uh, I would talk about theology, and they would say, oh, that's, that's just a mumbo-jumbo. I said, no, theology is the highest science. It's the greatest science. And now you begin to see why. Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, and that phrase is almost always used for angels, whether they be holy or unholy saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they choose, chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, 
For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants of the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God, fallen angels we think, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of whom were old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continual. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, this doesn't mean the Lord repented. It doesn't mean that the Lord changed his mind. This is the way Moses recorded the actions of God. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, thankfully, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'm just going to read that. We're not going to, we talked through Genesis a number of years ago and spent quite a bit of time on this. That uh, message is probably online if you want to go back and listen to Genesis chapter 6. And you probably should. So this is the reference from number 5 that we're taking a look at this morning. Next slide, if you would, brother. So in verses 19 through 21, we have moved uh, away from the reality of a risen Savior now to looking at the example of a ridiculed Noah. Uh, Noah was ridiculed for 120 years as he built the ark and preached. Peter has talked about being, having a reason for the hope that lies within you and being, uh, having the ability to give a reason to lost people for that hope. So the context, again, is king. Peter was ridiculed. The people that Peter are writing to are ridiculed, were ridiculed. And you and I, if we share our faith with folks, will sometimes be ridiculed. So the three main questions that you saw a couple of slides ago just uh, whet our insatiable appetites or at least mine. So where was Jesus, a question that would proceed from this, where was Jesus between his death and resurrection? Well, in Luke, we're told this. This is Jesus and the repentant thief, the dying thief. When he told him, today, a thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, today you will be with me in paradise. So many claim he descended into hell. But as I said last Sunday in verse 19, let's read it again. By whom also he went and preached by the spirits in, uh, to the spirits in prison. In fact, if you read through the remainder of the passage, there is no mention of descending. It says he went. And we'll look at that perhaps this morning or maybe next week. He doesn't say he descended. So we must be clear. Let's not read into the Bible what we want it to say. Let's read what the Bible says. Now, some of this is because of the Apostles' Creed that was put together around 400 A.D. Now, I want to say this. This is a good understanding of the Trinity. 
and we've recited it before, but it needs some clarification. And the Apostles' Creed reads this way, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now the word Catholic just means universal. This is about 100, maybe 200 years before the Roman Catholic Church was established. So that's all it means. We have a Catholic assembly, assembly here this morning, a universal united people. We're not Roman Catholics, but we are a Catholic church in that sense. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. As I said, this is helpful as it describes the uniqueness of the personhood within the Trinity. But I would remind you of this, as with all creeds or even catechisms, and that includes the Baptist faith and message that we subscribe to here. Uh, there are myriads of scripture references in these, but the way they are explained is not necessary. It's not scripture. So we have to keep that in mind, too. So where did Christ go? Well, the word that is used there, the spirits in prison, or prison, as he went to this particular place, it is the place uh, Tartarus, and there are a number of other names that are given to it, but it's described as the deepest abyss of Hades, and Hades is the Greek understanding of hell, Hades and Gehenna. It's the place that Jesus said in Matthew 25, that is being prepared for the devil and his angels. As heaven is being prepared by Jesus for saints, hell is being prepared as well, or Tartarus is being prepared for the devil and his angels. A different place than Gehenna. Jesus also said in this teaching, in Matthew 24 and 25, he said, I'm going to cast them into outer darkness. some theologians think that this has to do with the expanses of the universe. So the descending into hell comes from an ancient belief that hell is at the center of the earth. But we don't know that. And scripture does not allude to that. Hell is a permanent place. The earth is not. And suffice it to say, if heaven is the place of those that have been made righteous through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's being prepared 
by the Lord Jesus for you and I that know the Lord, then hell is a place, Tartarus is a place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's unique to them. And it's away from this creation. Now the word there, Tartarus, means to imprison an eternal torment. It literally means to cast into hell. And so from the Apostles' Creed and that phrase, he descended into hell, that was a belief during these early Middle Ages, or back during that time, four or 500 A.D., and so it's included in the Apostles' Creed. So remember that. All right, next slide. So here's the thing. The Westminster Confession of Faith and many other creeds, okay, teach us that when we interpret Scripture, this is the way we do it. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. You can't improve on Scripture, so when you come to a passage like this, we have to look at other places in Scripture. Therefore, when there's a question about the true and the full sense of any Scripture which is not manifold but one, which means that of the 66 books that we have, they make up one continual, overall, overarching focus, and that is God, the Creator and Redeemer, in His manifold love, grace, and mercy, set forth to redeem fallen sinners, not fallen angels, fallen humans that are sinners, and that's every person that's ever lived. So that's what's meant by this manifold but one. It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly, speaking of Scripture itself. Now we're going to look at these this morning. I don't know how far we'll get into these, but we're going to examine each of them with Scripture, and that's important. That's the only way we can come to a, uh, a, a good grasp of perhaps what Peter is saying. So the first one is, while Noah built the ark, Christ in spirit preached to the, uh, through Noah, repentance and redemption to unbelievers on the earth, but now there are spirits in prison, people imprisoned by sin in Noah's day. Well, as we've already said, there's some reasons that we don't subscribe to this. And the first one is, there's no mention of hell. There's no mention of Sheol or Hades or Gehenna in this passage. That's not the word. You can't find the word. It talks about prison. It doesn't talk about hell. So then we ask this question. So who were these spirits in prison? Because that is that is uh, consistent to trying to understand what Peter is writing about. Well, the word spirits is the word pneumata. And this word is used exclusively in the New Testament for angelic beings, whether it be holy or unholy, whether they be holy or unholy. We spent some time 
uh, last year looking at holy angels in the first part of First Peter. We'll spend some time looking in de at detail of the, of the fallen angels when we get to Second Peter. But the word is the word yumata, and it's always used in reference to angels, not humans. So the word prison is the word that you see there. It's a Greek word, and it means to be isolated, and that's a good de definition of prison. You're isolated from those that are about you. It can also mean a cage that is guarded. And so, from 2 Peter, we talked about that just a moment ago, we'll preach about that when we come to it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to, literally says, sent them to Hell, the word used there is Tartarus, the deepest pit of Hades, putting them into gloomy dungeons and pits of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on ungodly people, but protected Noah, and it continues, God knows how to preserve those that know him. Spirits, then, from that we deduce, are fallen angels. And secondly, the prison is a place that has been prepared by God to confine them in some nature. We're not told how they're confined. Uh, apparently, when God doesn't tell us, we just don't need to know. Next slide. In Jude, the little epistle of Jude, the half-brother of our Lord wrote this. And the angels who did not keep their domain. The understanding is who did not keep their created domain. How they are, were created, something occurred that caused Lucifer to rebel against the triune God. And we're told in the Psalms that at least a third of the angels followed Lucifer. But they abandoned their own dwelling place with God. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare an abode for you. I'm going to prepare a place where you will be at home with me. God had also prepared in his heaven a place for his angels. We learned that going through scripture. John teaches about it in the book of Revelation extensively. So Jude says there were those that left their created domain. We see that in Genesis chapter 6. They abandoned their dwelling place with God. They didn't want to be associated or near God. And that's a good understanding of fallen angels. Jude goes on to say he is kept in everlasting chains. He is kept in some type of confinement under darkness. That's the abyss of Hades. 
for the judgment of that great day. Now, the word for prison is used exclusively for angelic demons, not humans. And if we took the time to go to Revelation chapter 20, you can write this in the reference here, Revelation 20, verse 7. It says that Satan is released from prison, from Tartarus. Further, prison is used as a metaphor to represent the confining of spirit beings. Again, how that's done, we don't know. Now, Karen uh, Jobes, in her commentary, and it's a great commentary, by the way, on 1 Peter says this. Their imprisonment represents, in spatial terms, God's restraining power over them, and the message Christ preached to them is confirmation of the, uh, of the day of great conclusion, which was first announced during the flood and is now upon them. So you begin to see some of the timing that's taking place here. So these are some of the reasons that we don't subscribe to the first few, and these carry forth to the others. Number two, after Christ died, he went and he preached to people in hell and to Sheol. Dead Old Testament saints were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. We've seen 1 Peter 4 and verse 6. We, uh, we read that. First thing always, no mention of hell. And some believe that Christ preached to Old Testament believers in Abraham's bosom. But Peter would have been aware of Abraham's bosom. And Peter could have said that. And he didn't. And the Old Testament word for hell is usually Sheol, not Hades. Uh, Abraham's bosom apparently, and we're talking about compartments, we're talking about confinement. Abraham's bosom was apparently consisted of abodes separated by a great gulf. We learned that from Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Besides, between you and me, Abraham told the rich man, there's a great gulf. Jesus' declaration to the thief again in Luke 24, 43, where he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't say Abraham's bosom. He could have. So we deduce from that he's speaking of heaven. And the need for Christ to preach to Old Testament saints, if they're saints, that's highly suspicious and unlikely. Why would he need to preach to people that are already saved? That's the second one. Next slide, number three. After Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, proclaiming to them these were unbelievers, that he had triumphed over them and their condemnation was found. Again, no mention of hell in the passage. It speaks to Jesus parading his triumphant resurrection over unrepentant unbelievers. 
And since they would have been punished in the place of torment, that's what we're told in Luke 16, 28, again, this seems highly suspicious and unlikely. Why would Jesus do that when they're already dead in their sins and in torment? Now, fourth, now I'm going to spend some time on this one because this is, this is where the heresies come from. After Christ died, he proclaimed release to people that had repented just before they died in the flood. That is nowhere, we're not told that at all in Scripture. In fact, Peter says, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight souls were saved. So it just didn't happen. But there are some that think that he went and preached to these that Repenting, Lord, save me as the water is coming over, but the scripture never records that. But in any event, he offered them a second chance to salvation. And he led them out of their imprisonment, purgatory, into heaven. Last week we talked about the Roman Catholic Mass. And we focused on verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He suffered once for sins. And I reminded you that the Catholics believe, in fact, they teach that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, the wafer actually becomes the body of Christ, and the juice or the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. And there was such a concern many years ago when, that, when their church was established that people would be repulsed at the blood of Christ that they instituted a bloodless mass. Does that sound familiar? How many people have you talked with today or witnessed to that have uh, had... One or two people when I worked at said, I just, can't, I just can't subscribe to a butchering type of, of uh, redemption. And both of these particular individuals were Catholic. He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I mentioned this last Sunday, but we didn't read this passage. But go back to Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> it pays to read your Bible. And it pays to make sure that when you come to passages like this, that you understand that there are other passages that give us insight into what is being said here. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary... Well, look at verse 22. 
And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Can't get away from it. You cannot get away from the blood of Christ. You can't get away from the blood of the sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary that the copy of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ does not enter the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that the judgment. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly uh, waited for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, in the plain sense of Scripture, makes common sense. We seek no other sense. Purgatory is the second heresy. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Again, no mention of hell. It speaks to Christ preaching a second chance at repentance for supposed deathbed unbelievers. But we've already read we can't find it in the book of Genesis. It's not mentioned anywhere else, else in Scripture. And Peter himself said, only eight souls were saved. The Bible is crystal clear. If you're listening, say amen. amen. The Bible is crystal clear. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as we said, spirits most likely doesn't refer to humans, but evil angels. So, for those reasons. Next slide. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary, wrote this. It makes no sense contextually for Peter to be teaching that, that the wicked have a second chance in a letter in which he exhorts the righteous to persevere and endure suffering. Eternal life is conditioned upon perseverance. Blessed is he that endures to the end, Jesus said. All mo motivation would vanish if Peter now offered a second opportunity after death. And he doesn't. The benefit of braving suffering is difficult to grasp. If another opportunity, if I just got to wait till I die and I'll get a second chance. The benefit of braving suffering is, is difficult to grasp if another opportunity to respond is offered after death. Oh, how humanity wishes this to be true.
It is this worldview that has wickedly caused millions to await purgatory in order to pay for their sins committed in this life with the hope of being released to be with God in his heaven after thousands of years of labor in purgatory. Oh, how people wish that were true. Purgatory is defined as the purification to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Folks, the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven is the imputed holiness and righteousness of Jesus. We could live ad infinitum for eternity and never achieve the holiness or righteousness of God. impossible he goes on to say experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified they teach that it's necessary because scripture teaches nothing unclean will enter the presence of God Revelation 21 27 that's true be not deceived John said neither liars nor whoremongers nor adulterers nor thieves nor the abusers of themselves imagine none of these people are going to enter heaven that's true and it matters not whether you weigh 10 20 100 1 trillion 1 google years you'll never enter heaven so we may die in our mortal sins they believe in mortal and venial sins mortal sins that you can't get into heaven with Venial is just a white lie. But anyway, Peter has already assigned this to the smoldering garbage dump of history in verse 18. As the old southern preacher said, it just ain't going to happen. Martin Lloyd-Jones. How did these verses strengthen Christian people to endure suffering? That's what we're talking about, suffering. What was the use of being told that those who had died impenitent at the time of the deluge, at the time of the flood, were going to have another opportunity of salvation? How did that help them suffer? And how did it help them be told that there would be a second chance for the unbeliever? And he said dogmatically, it is utterly irrelevant. I'm going to stop because number five will take us a while to get there, but this is a good place to stop. Two heresies. Please, I know there may be some of you that are listening this morning, perhaps watching. You may do this later on, but I implore you as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not subscribe to the fact 
that the blood of Christ needs to be offered again and again and again and again and again. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. And so that's the reason we partake of the Lord's Supper. And secondly, do not be persuaded by the pernicious lie of the demons that are in Tartarus. That you're going to get a second chance. Now here's the truth. If you're listening, say amen. Here's the truth. You've already received a second chance. And a third chance. And a fourth chance. And a fifth chance. How many times have you heard the gospel? Do you think it's going to become more real to you if you pass away and go to a place and they start to labor to get to pay for your past sins? Do you really think that's going to change your mind? Jesus said they have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. And he said, if they don't listen to them, they won't be persuaded, though one raised from the dead, rise from the dead. It's today. Today is the day of salvation. These two and others caused a rediscovery of Scripture during the Reformation. You and I benefactors, I said this last week, you and I benefactors of that. We cannot mix heretical teaching into the truth of the Word of God. And we cannot mix heretical, we cannot take heretical teaching and try to explain what's in the Word. The question this morning is, Jesus died for you once. You now have an opportunity this morning to repent of your sins and call out to a loving Savior that loves you beyond not only your imagination, but beyond the entire population that has ever been on this earth that accumulated imagination. And he desires that you come today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we've looked at this passage of scripture, it's 